we continue our study in the book of Ephesians. Uh, and so if you have a Bible, open to Ephesians 3. If you don't, you can find the scripture uh, on the sermon guide in your order of worship. Today's sermon comes from Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. His name was Tom D. Hall, and I will never forget him. He has since past, but he was uh, an engineer in the consulting firm that I started my first job as a civil engineer years ago, uh, coming out of grad school. And Tom Hall was one of these, uh, you know, traditional old school engineers. He was probably in his late 60s, approaching 70. And he had a passion for helping. We, we built water treatment plants and wastewater treatment plants, and that's what he designed. But he had a passion for helping you understand everyday stuff and the engineering behind it. So one day we're gathered, I think it was in the lunch break room, and we had this, uh, this temp receptionist. She was a temporary receptionist. Her name was Janine, late 20s, maybe 30. And we're, it's Tom and her and then me, a couple other engineers sitting around, and, and she's drinking water out of a styrofoam cup through a straw. And he says, Janine, do you realize how that water is getting out of that cup and into your mouth? And she kind of goes, uh, yeah, I just suck it out of the cup. And he goes, no. He said, when you pucker your cheeks, you create lower pressure in your mouth than is outside. And so that water flows from high pressure to low pressure. Did you know that? And Janine is like, I don't know that I want to know that. But Myself and the other engineer sitting next to him, we're going, aha, that's fascinating. So he goes on, I'll try to keep this not graphic, but uh, we're eating lunch and he says, he says, Janine, do you know how that food goes from how you're eating it to how when you go to the bathroom? And by this time, her ears are red. She's like, I don't wanna hear this. And so he explains and he says, your body is like a wastewater treatment plant. And it produces this solid waste. And he's going on and on and her ears are red. But then again, we have a couple engineers in there, myself, who are designing these facilities going, aha, so that's how the body works. It was a, it was a couple aha moments where Tom D. Hall 
revealed to us how something worked that we were unaware of, and certainly that Janine was unaware of. This is an aha moment of Scripture for several reasons. One, it's an aha moment for Paul. When he starts in verse 1 and says, for this reason I, Paul, he stops. It's like a hiccup. It's like uh, Paul has this ADD moment. Because what we see in in verse 14 of chapter 3 is actually when he picks back up with what he intended to do, starting in verse 1. For this very reason, he was going to pray for these Gentiles that had been welcomed into the household of God. But he breaks off in this moment, and it's an aha moment, and he expounds. And he reveals a mystery here in this aha moment. And so we're going to explore this mystery that he reveals by asking two questions. What is the mystery and how is the mystery revealed? So what is the mystery? Now, why am I even referring to a mystery? The word appears four times in this little digression of Paul in these 13 verses. Now, it's different than the way you and I think of mystery. When we think of mystery, we think of a murder mystery, or, or something that has to be solved, something that we have to figure out, that we have to put the puzzle pieces together. But mystery, as Paul uses it here and throughout the rest of the New Testament, is actually completely the opposite. Mystery in the Bible is something that God reveals that we could never figure out on our own something that God reveals that we could never figure out on our own because it's completely counterintuitive. And so there's a what and a how component to this mystery. First, the what. What is the mystery? Well, verse six, he says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, he's just repeating what he said in chapter one, verse 10, that in to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven, and things on earth. In other words, the mystery is this, that God is putting everything back together in Jesus. In verse 6, Jew and Gentile is a small example of this, where you have two people that hated each other with historic animosity that are now one in Christ. Reconciliation. That's the mystery, is that God's putting everything back together in Christ. Now, here's what's not the mystery. It is not a mystery that our world is falling apart. That's that's not a mystery. It's not a mystery that nations are falling apart because they're at war. It's not a mystery that American culture is falling apart. Uh, It's not a mystery that, that disease and sickness is racking bodies. It's not a mystery that your, uh, your house gets messy and dirty without you even really having to try to get it there. Uh, it's not a mystery that your car breaks down. The world is falling apart. When you watch the six o'clock news and you hear of the abuse and the murder and the, the crime and the theft, that's not a mystery. In fact, we become desensitized to it. 
Here's the mystery. It's the human interest story on the six o'clock news that two bitter enemies have been reconciled and actually love one another. It's a mystery that a, that a, a marriage is on the rocks and headed towards divorce and maybe right there. And miraculously, they come back together and years later have a thriving, healthy marriage. That's a mystery. It's a mystery when you hear about someone who has a disease, maybe cancer, and they get healed and the doctors throw their arms up and say, I have no idea how this happened. That's a mystery. The mystery is that God is taking a world that's falling apart and moving away from oneness and bringing it back together in Jesus. Now, how is this mystery revealed or how is God putting things back together? This is the how of it. And it's that he's doing it through weakness and suffering and death. In fact, Paul says in verse three that this mystery that we just described was revealed to him by revelation. Now, what Paul is referring to there is his Damascus Road experience. He's on the Damascus Road. He's on his way to pick up Christians, to murder them, to imprison them, to persecute them. And on his way, Jesus meets him and blinds him on the road. Now, I want you to imagine what was going through Paul's mind when he got blinded on the road to Damascus. And then when when Jesus spoke to him, I want you to imagine, because here's Paul persecuting, killing these Christians, these poor little Christians that are following and, and pledging their allegiance to a dead man who died a criminal's death decades earlier on a cross in a most humiliating way. And these poor people are so disillusioned that they're, that they're following this dead man, right? That, that is, it was laughable to Paul. And they were creating a mess and they had to, got, they had to be getting rid of. Now imagine Paul being confronted by this poor, pitied, bloodied man that he saw as just another so-called savior that was dying for the world appear to him in bright, shining glory. Imagine what was going on in his mind. That this man that I thought was dead, that died horribly, is alive. You see, the mystery to Paul was revealed that God crushed sin and death without crushing his people. That God crushed sin and death by crushing his own son, Jesus. And that this mystery of God bringing all things back together happens through a weak, powerless, dying man on a cross who was raised from the dead and is now alive and king and putting everything back together. The mystery was revealed and made known to Paul. Now, how is this mystery of God putting everything back together in Jesus, how is it revealed or made known? Verse nine, and this is the hinge of the passage, to bring to light for everyone what is the the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Here it is, so that, listen up, so that through the church, 
the manifold wisdom of God might be, na- might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. How is the mystery revealed? Paul says it's not through just a bunch of individuals, that it's through the church, that he's revealing this mystery through the church. One author writes it writes this way, the church is God's pilot plan for the reconciled universe of the future. The church is God's pilot plan for the reconciled universe of the future. In Deuteronomy chapter four, God says to Israel, if you'll obey me, you will show my glory to the nations. Here, Paul takes it a step further. He says, church, you will show my glory, not just to the world, but to the universe. The rulers and authorities here are the angels and demons that you're gonna be on display and show this mystery that the world, yes, it's falling apart, but that Jesus is putting it back together. You know that a recent study showed that 81% of Americans believe that you can be a good Christian and not a part of a church. 81% of Americans believe that you can be a good Christian and not part of a church. Paul has no category for that. No category. No, through the church. And you say, well, now wait a minute. But look at the church today, right? It's a mess. I mean, look at how many people have been wounded by it. And you may be sitting here this morning, one of those people that have been deeply wounded by the church. Look at the sin and hypocrisy. I mean, look at the the pastors and leadership and moral failure. The church is a mess. Do you realize what the church was like in the first century? (laughs) I mean, just consider Paul's letter to the Corinthians. There was uh, incest and sexual sin in the church, in Corinth, in the church, not just out in the culture, that would make your ears turn red. See, Paul's not naive. He realizes the church is broken and is messy, and he still makes the point. It's indispensable. It is God's plan A for revealing this mystery to the world, and there's no plan B. That it's through the church. It's why we put such an emphasis on community here at Christ Church East, because when we talk about church, we're not talking about the brick and mortar building. We're talking about a people, a people who are so intimately connected as family, that as a family, they're on display to a world that is displaying this mystery, a new society, a new community. If you've ever been to an older church, you'll see stained glass windows, right? You say, why why did they put stained glass windows? Some of these older churches. Is it just for beauty? What was it for? Well, it was because people couldn't read. They couldn't read, and so they needed a a picture of the gospel. And so there are churches where uh, that are extensive with stained glass where you can literally move yourself around the room and by picture, see the story of God's redemption through Jesus Christ. And it was there for these people that couldn't read and by picture, they could hear and see the gospel. The second thing to note about stained glass is uh, one window is made up of a bunch of different pieces of glass that are different shape and different color. And that all those pieces come together to make a picture 
One of those pieces by itself makes no sense apart from the whole. And in the same way, you by yourself, by yourself can't reveal this mystery of the gospel to the world. That no, you as part of the body and the church and the community and the family of God's people make up together a stained glass window, a bigger picture that says to a watching world or that reveals to a watching world what this, what this mystery is. So if the mystery is revealed through the church, how is it revealed through the church? In other words, if we're all, and I love the stained glass imagery because every one of us has some pretty sharp edges and every one of us has some, some of us are nice circles, some are jagged, and over a lifetime, it's kind of like the, uh, the glass you'll find at the beach that's been tumbling a while out there, it comes in and it's smooth, right? But if you get a piece of glass that flows up that's just barely been there, it's sharp, it's jagged, it's a beautiful picture of what God does to jagged, broken people, right? But he puts it all together. And what I want you to see here in this passage is Paul is describing what these individual pieces look like that come together and make a beautiful, bigger picture that reveals the mystery. First, okay, that, that God reveals his mystery through the church of servants, of servants. Look at verse one. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Paul is in prison writing this letter to the church in Ephesus. Now, why was he in prison? Well, we learn in Acts chapter 21 that Paul went to Jerusalem and he would teach in the temple and that he brought a Gentile from Ephesus named Trophimus with him into the temple. And he did it because the dividing wall of hostility had been removed. Jews and Gentiles had access to the same father through the spirit. So he brings Trophimus in, but the temple leaders would have nothing to do with it. They still had a dividing wall of hostility because they had rejected what Jesus had done. And so he brought this Gentile in Trophimus and they threw Paul in prison. Now it explains what you read in verse 13 of this passage when Paul says, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you. You see what he's saying? Yes, I went to jail because I brought one of yours, Trophimus, into the temple with me, but don't feel bad for me. I don't want you to feel sorry for me. I'm not a prisoner of Rome. Ultimately, I'm a prisoner for Jesus. I'm in prison because of Jesus, for Jesus, and by his will. You see, Paul had surrendered his autonomy to advance the cause of Jesus. He had surrendered his autonomy to advance the cause of Jesus. And if that meant going to prison for Paul, it was so be it. He writes in a couple of his other letters. In Galatians chapter two, verse 20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. What does this mean? It means that autonomous Paul was dead. That autonomous Paul was dead. That he had lost his rights to make autonomous decisions that pleased his will. And that he only could make decisions that were pleasing to God and that were in accord with his will. And he says in 1 Corinthians 6, you're bought with a price. You're not your own. 
There was a, a pastor, he was doing premarital counseling with this young couple. And they got in there and, and he asked them, he said, uh, do you know how many children you wanna have? Do you want zero, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven? How many children do you want? And, and have you talked about it? And the wife said, well, we, we really haven't talked about it. But when it comes to make that decision, it's my decision because it's my body. And to which, and, and the reason the pastor asked the question was not to actually know how many kids they were gonna have, but to see how they processed and made decisions together. 1 Corinthians 7, 4. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. You see, you're not your own. You're a, you're a servant of Jesus, having surrendered your autonomy, having surrendered your autonomy. You're an ambassador of Christ positioned to advance the cause of the king. You know, it's the great lie of our culture, and maybe you've heard this, that if we would all just be more tolerant, right? Everybody could just operate according to their own beliefs and not impress beliefs on anybody else. You make truth to be what you make it to be, and you live it out how you wanna live it. If we could all just be more tolerant and live like that, the world would be a more peaceful place. And the reality is actually just the opposite because it's the lie that we see in the very beginning. When Adam and Eve were in the garden and Satan came to Adam and Eve, what, what did he basically say? You need to captain your own ship. This God that you're serving, he's holding out on you. He's not good. You need to captain your own ship. And when you do, you'll be happy. So that's what they did. And how did it work out? Pretty quickly, things, things turned to hell pretty quickly after Genesis 3 when we became autonomous. And my wife and I had a very interesting dating period that led to our engagement. And uh, some of you have heard it. You had the couple hours to hear it. Uh, it's quite a sordid tale. But as we got to a point of, of being serious about thinking about marriage, the, un the doubt, the uncertainty that was there was so heavy that it wasn't healthy for us to move on. So we called it off for several months. And during that time, my wife would tell you, she loved me, but there was so much that was gonna change in her life with what was coming. She was about to lose her mom and she was feeling burdened for her dad and caring for him. She was about to go into marriage with a man who was not a knight in shining armor. She was about to leave what she knew uh, for a, a decade or more and move to a city, this little podunk city in North Florida called Jacksonville. And she was about to take on the daunting task of being the wife of, uh, of a pastor. And all of this was swirling and all these things that were coming led her to paralysis. She couldn't move. She couldn't make a decision. And she'll tell you that one day she walked out into the backyard of the house she was living in, and she said, she said, Lord Jesus, if it is critical to the advance of your kingdom that I marry Keith, then you have got to move me out of this paralysis. 
and you know what happened. He did. But it's not the last time that that prayer has been uttered in our household. When we were dealing with infertility and, and weeping with tears, we prayed, Lord Jesus, if it is critical to the advance of your kingdom and your cause that we do not have biological children, then so be it and align our hearts that way. You see, we're called to be servants of Jesus that says, your will be done, Lord Jesus, not mine. And that doesn't take away the pain of suffering and shattered dreams and all of that, but it says at the end of the day, Lord Jesus, I surrender my autonomy and I'm committed to advancing your cause, whatever it takes. You're a servant of Jesus living for a cause that is much higher than you. Do you know that there are thousands of Westerners and Americans that are joining ISIS and becoming jihadists every day? You'd say, no, of course not. Thousands of Westerners and Americans that are, become, that are joining ISIS and becoming jihadists. And you say, why? Why is that happening? And here's why. Because liberal Western culture that says there's nothing higher than to live for yourself is not providing the transcendent cause for young people or millennials. And that's why it's happening in those cases. Being a servant of Jesus says that I live for a higher cause than my own wants, than my own desires, that I live for Jesus so that he can, through me and a body of people with that mindset called the church, can display to the world this mystery, this counterintuitive mystery that God's bringing everything back together through the church. Second, so the mystery is revealed through his church, through a church of servants. Second, through a church of stewards. Look at verse two. Paul says, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. A steward of God's grace. What does that mean? Well, a steward is someone that, that doesn't own something, but they're put in charge over something. In fact, the word steward literally means manager of a house. Uh, when I was younger, working in youth ministry and single, very often I would have parents uh, bring me, hire me, whatever you call it, to stay at their house for the weekend while the parents went away and I had two jobs. One was to take care of the house and two was to make sure the kids were alive when the parents got back. Those were my two jobs. I was a steward. They called me to be a steward. I didn't own their house. I didn't own their children. I was a steward called to take care of what belonged to them. What Paul is saying here in the same way is that he's a steward of God's grace. And look how he describes it in verse eight. He says, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. 
when he says very least of all the saints there, he uses a, a superlative to make a point. He's really saying, I'm the least of the least, or I'm the leaster of all of the saints. Paul's saying, I'm not just throwing myself into the company of sinful people. I'm beyond that. I persecuted the church. I killed Christians. I was awful. And God gave me grace for one purpose, to preach that amazing grace to the Gentiles, to preach it to the families of the ones that I took off and hauled off to prison and killed, that I was given God's grace freely to then be a distributor of God's grace. Think about the, uh, the FedEx truck in the morning that backs its way up to the loading dock and it gets all these packages loaded into the truck. What does the FedEx driver do once all the packages are loaded into his truck? Well, he drives the truck home. He opens all the packages. He decides which ones he wants. And then he goes and distributes the rest, right? Of course not. It's not his job. Those packages don't belong to him. He simply called to distribute those packages to people. In the same way, the gifts of God's grace given to you don't belong to you. They belong to God. You're called to steward them and distribute them to others, to give them away to others. At a recent meeting of a bunch of church planning pastors in Florida, we were hearing from various people and a college pastor that works on a campus in Southwest Florida got up and he shared a story. He said he had a bunch of college students over to his house one night for a dinner. And he and his wife had several young kids. They cooked the dinner and these students came over and they all sat down around the tables and, and had a family meal. And the kids hung around for a while and towards the end of the night, all the college students left except for one student. And he said the student just kept lingering and lingering and lingering. And finally, he got up the courage to, to tell this college pastor what he wanted to say. And he said, and you know, even quivering, he said, thank you for inviting me over to dinner. I've never experienced a family meal like this before. He said, I grew up in a broken family. And we never sat around the table and ate a meal and talked. And this college pastor was undone. Something that simple, the gift of his family, the gift of provision for food to have a meal with someone who had never experienced that measure of God's grace and what was intended for his life. What's, what is the gift or the gifts of grace that God has given to you to steward. You know, oftentimes we, we, we overlook what we have that is such a tremendous blessing and gift because we become so used to it, like the meal from that college student. What are the gifts of grace that God has given you? What's the the, you know, the shape of the stained glass piece, the color of the piece that is specific to you that God has given to you that he wants you to steward? What are the gifts of grace that, that maybe you're hoarding and not using and not distributing to others as he would call you? 
You're a steward of God's grace. You're part of this stained glass window that is beautiful and on display to a world that is illiterate towards the gospel. They can't read it. They can't see it. But you, church, are the picture. And they see it through the church of servants and of stewards that are displaying it and living it out. Johnny Erickson Tata, she's a quadriplegic, and she has a ministry uh, to people that are disabled because she had an accident when she was 18 years old. She was uh, at the Chesapeake Bay, and she dove into shallow water, uh, and she became a quadriplegic. And right after the accident, uh, she was in a hospital rehab room with another girl by the name of Denise Walters. And this girl, Denise, was 17 years old, high school student, happy, popular, cheerleader, just life beaming from her. And one day she was walking up the stairs at her school. Her legs started to buckle. Her knees buckled and they became very weak. And weeks later, she was paralyzed from the legs down. And then several weeks later, she was paralyzed from the arms down. And then several weeks later, she went blind. She had a very, very, very rare and aggressive form of MS. And, and so Johnny is sitting here watching this girl, Denise, in this hospital room. And every day, her mom would walk into the hospital room. And her mom and Denise were both believers. And she would walk in, and she would read Scripture to Denise. And they would sing songs together, worship songs together. I mean, the most amazing worship service there is. Where two or three are gathered, Jesus says, I am there. And in this hospital room, there was worship happening. And one of the things that as Johnny watched this happen that she struggled with, because what ended up happening is she watched Denise die in that very room. She never left the hospital room. And Johnny struggled with how could this girl be a light to the world when she never left the hospital room. And then she was reading Ephesians 3, verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And I already told you that the rulers and authorities, that's speaking of the angels and the demons. And it clicked for her. And she realized in that moment that the angels and the demons, the entire universe, the heavens, the angels and the demons were watching this and they were in awe of what they were seeing. The mystery unfolded, salvation, the, the, the patience, the perspective, everything that was flowing out of this mother and this daughter, the church, two believers, finding hope in that situation. And she ended up writing the mother after her daughter died a letter speaking those very things. Do you realize that you, and I say you plural, Christ Church East, you plural community group on this side of town, that you are on display. Yes, for the world and bigger than that. Scriptures say that the angels long to look into things of salvation. They see what's happening in your life in the midst of pain and difficulty and brokenness 
and what God is doing, they look and they are amazed because angels will never know salvation. And certainly not the demons, that the entire universe is watching, that you're on display through the church that God's wisdom, that the mystery of him putting all things back together in Jesus is happening and being revealed through his church. Can we be that church? Can we be that church that is so rooted in Christ as servants and as stewards of his grace that we would be a stained glass window, a beautiful stained glass window to the world around us? Let's pray. Father, there's a lot of reasons that we could come up with to doubt your church. There's sin, there's brokenness, there's hypocrisy, there's all of that is true. And yet your plan A and there is no plan B is to reveal the mystery to this world that God is putting things back together in Jesus through your church. And Father, we plead that that this local expression, this body here at Christ Church East would be faithful to that that we would have that perspective and that we would be a church of servants, not our will, but your will be done. And that we would be a church of stewards, that the gracious gifts that you have given us, that we steward them and distribute them to others. Father, we don't wanna be a people that do church. We don't wanna be a people that just go to an event called Sunday morning worship or we wanna be a people that are the church, that are a deeply interconnected body of people forming a stained glass window of beauty for this world to see. And we pray this all in Christ's name, amen.